Father, that our prayer this morning that first, Lord, that you would be worshipped, but Lord, that we would know your love. And so, Father, would you fill this place with your presence? Would you help us to know that you are here? Would you help us to see you on the throne and know that you are actively reigning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. And youngins, it is time for you to head on downstairs and uh, get to the stuff that you're going to do today. Your teachers are waiting for you in the back. They will take you on downstairs. And I got to tell you, so uh, I have begun to uh, teach Sunday school one month uh, out of the, the, one day out of the month. I'll get there. Uh, and I got to tell you, I like them a little bit better than I like y'all. Um, they are fun. Uh, now that's not, a, I, don't want, I don't mean that to be a slam on you. I'm just saying that you guys are cool, but they are so much cooler that it was just a lot of fun. Um, I had a lot of fun last week with them. Um, I do just a couple of uh, housekeeping things before we kick this off this morning. The first is uh, I want to be clear that I am actively 100% uh, opposed to this autumnal equinox. And so I am going to uh, declare it summertime, whether uh, the equinox likes it or not. I'm not sure what the autumnal equinox thinks uh, of, of themselves, strutting in like they own the place. Um, but until I am ready uh, to put on pants, I'm not wearing pants because I refuse to acknowledge the autumnal equinox, the hubris of the seasons, I tell you. Um, on a slightly more serious note, um, actually, yeah, this is a more serious note. One thing I, I'd just like to share, uh, just a little bit of family news. We had a pretty awesome thing happen this, uh, this week. We had our congregation, our vineyard family, grow the old-fashioned way. Uh, J.D. and Shannon Stedman, uh, they, they were able to welcome their daughter, Ireland, on Friday, um, which is awesome. Um, and if you're thinking, I don't know if I know who they are, I'll tell you that this is how you probably will identify them. They sit right there. They, you know, they're typically sitting right there. Um, but uh, one thing that I, I would just ask is that we would pray for Ireland. Ireland was born at 30 weeks, um, uh, quite early. Uh, she's 2 pounds, 13 ounces. And so she is in the NICU at uh, Billings Clinic right now. And so if you would join me, what better way to start our time together than to pray for the newest member of our family. So Father, would you come and wrap your arms around Ireland? Father, would you be so thick in that room that nothing could be there but you and your presence? And Father, I pray that you'd wrap around Shannon and JD. I pray that you'd chase fear in the name of Jesus, and I pray that you'd replace it with joy. And Father, we lift this little girl to you. Lord, we can't wait to meet her. And so Father, would you bring healing to all of the things that would need healing? Would you bring strength? Would you bring development? Would you bring your love? And Father, would you also make us ready to love her well? And so Father, we entrust the Stedman family to you. We entrust Ireland to you. And as we worship you now, we pray that, uh, that they would be joining us in the spirit, that we would know that they're with us, but that they would know we are with them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we'll keep you updated on, on Ireland, and I'm looking forward for uh, the day that, that we get to meet her here 
in, uh, in our gathering together. But we are a few weeks into our fall series using the parables that Jesus taught to help us learn and discern how to draw life from him. Uh, we, we started out looking at John 15, and, and in this teaching in John 15, Jesus presents a metaphor for this relationship when he says that, that he is the vine and, and we, those that choose to follow him, are the branches, the branches that draw life from the vine. So the parables we're, we're, we're going to look at today present another example of, of something that, that's emerging from this study, something that even flows out of what we considered this summer when we examined faith, when we took that, that look at our historic Christian lineage that's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. What we saw there and what we see here today is that the story is more about God than it is about us. By extension, our salvation tells us more about God than it does about us. We know that if salvation could be earned, if it, if it was a product of our accomplished work, if it was our achievement, if it was uh, uh, something that, that we progress towards, then salvation would be about us. It would be something that we earned, and therefore it would say something about us. But it isn't. Which means that salvation isn't about us. Salvation is an outcome of having faith that Jesus is who Scripture says that he is, and that the, and the parables are a prime location for a revelation of who he is. The character of God that emerges from his interactions with humanity all the way through his, his being that ultimate substitutionary sacrifice becomes that which we place our faith in. The choice to save us and the method chosen to save us testifies to the character of God, not to the character of those that he comes to save. So today we see Jesus exemplified by a shepherd and an old woman, and humanity exemplified as sheep and a lost coin. I did a little bit of, of, of uh, research on this, and I found that there are a lot of people that are offended by the folks that, that, that talk about sheep being dumb. And so just because I don't want to step into the realm of, of offending anybody early, um, that'll come in a bit. Uh, I'm not going to talk about how dumb sheep are. Um, I'll just uh, mention that, that sheep are kind of dumb. And so, you know, the fact that we would be exemplified by sheep, um, we ought to read into that a little bit. Uh, but we are exemplified in these parables as a, as a sheep and also as a coin. In these stories, we see the character of God. We see in, the, in these interactions with, with humanity a model also for our own interactions with humanity. So we see God act with his character, and we see a model of how we ought to act with that same character. So we're going to begin with the parable of the lost sheep found in both Matthew 18 and Luke 15. We're going to use Luke 15 for our study this morning. So you can join me, Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep 
and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and turns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed. Now, a quick side note, may not turn into a very quick of a side note, but we'll start out hoping that it might be a quick side note. Every time we see the actions and the words of religious people in the gospel narrative, we need to pay attention. Every time we see the religious acting with religion, we need to snap in. Jesus is teaching at them and around them on these occasions, and it's clear that this is an intentional announcement of the kingdom of God. What he's giving in these parables is an intentional announcement of the kingdom of God. The impetus for all of this parable flows from the complaints and the sheer shock of the people that Jesus was spending time with. What Jesus presented to the, re- to the religious people, what he presented to the old wineskin people, was concerning because it upset the order that they had worked so hard to create. They had a hierarchy. They had a code of behavior. They had a means for eliminating anyone unwilling to submit to their interpretation of the world and of the word. So there's what was a mechanism of exclusion, excluding all of those that would not behave in order to belong. Let me say that again. They had a mechanism of exclusion, excluding all of those that would not behave in order to belong. Now remember, the definition of behavior was one that they created. but one they made about God because of the status they'd given themselves. They said that it was about God. God didn't say that it was about God. Jesus was was, was attacking, actively attacking their counterfeit authority by allowing people to belong regardless of their behavior. The activity of Jesus could not contrast more than the activity of the religious people. Unfortunately, that is as true today as it was then. The activity of Jesus could not contrast more than the activity of religious people. When old wineskins create a system of behavior that that must be attained and maintained in order to belong, the operation of that group is in stark contrast to the operation of Jesus. If the phrase, a house divided against itself, cannot stand is in your mind right now, then you understand the problem that's, that's apparent here. Those proclaiming to be the church, that demand behavior in order to belong, are in conflict with the teaching of Jesus. Those proclaiming to be the church, that demand behavior in order to belong are in conflict with the teachings of Jesus 
what we see is that the invitation to belong exposes the invited to the love of God. This leads to a belief in God, being who he says that he is, and finally, we see behavior change began with that invitation. So rather than behave to belong, we see belong lead to belief that changes behavior. We also see not behave in order to belong, but belong, believe, and be saved. So religious people are often more focused on other people's behavior than their own. And in this, they miss the mission of God. They miss everything that is presented through the love of Jesus. They miss the entire gospel narrative. Jesus is with those cast out of religious communities. This parable is set in this, in, in this time because Jesus is, is with those that are cast out of the religious communities. He's with the sinners. Those are the ones that came to hear Jesus teach. Another point that we should pay attention to this. The people that came to hear him teach are the sinners, the outcasts. The religious didn't come to be taught. The religious people don't come to teachings to be taught. Religious people come to criticize. Tax collectors and notorious sinners, all of them are there because they feel a beckoning out of death and into life. The religious people want to stay dead through their criticism. What they're also doing, these religious people... They are actively attempting to keep sinners dead so they don't upset their idea of self-created order. And into this, Jesus teaches. A shepherd has a hundred sheep, one is missing. Now there are two religious answers that can be applied to this problem. First, is that 99 out of 100 is actually pretty good. It's a marginal loss. Cut the loss and move on with life. One out of 99, really, it's just a sheep. Efficiency would tell us, focus on the 99. That's what really would be beneficial here. Let the one go. It's risk management. In the danger of losing another, we don't want it to go down to 98, so let's focus on the 99. Let's focus on the 99 that didn't get lost. And that brings us to the other religious answer. The first religious answer is just cut your loss. One's not that bad. The second one is this. The lost made a choice to get lost and likely are choosing to stay lost. So let's give them what they want. They did whatever they did to stray Reap what you sow. C'est la vie. French words for my boy Davey that's running sound today. Mwah. It's really the only reason why I say French words up here is just for Dave. So I love you, Dave. It also makes me lose my place, so I probably should stop. 
There we go. <laughs> but the behavior of the sheep that led them to get, getting separated, that's really what we ought to focus on. So let the sheep go. Let them go. They made, the, they made their bed. Let them lie in it. This sheep decided to get lost. When the sheep noticed it was lost, it didn't work to be found. That sheep is lost. They get what they deserve. This is justice. Let them have it. Let's turn our focus to the ones that complied. Let them go. Focus on the ones that behaved. Or, there's an ouchie coming, just so you know. At least, let's focus on the ones that either behaved or at least misbehaved like the other 98 sheep so it doesn't look like misbehavior. This would fit the Pharisees' worldview. This fits the religious worldview. Let them go. The religious people that Jesus was teaching around would certainly be in this place. Let them go. It was an offense even for the religious to hang out with sinners at this time. It was a sin to be with sinners. This is such an interesting dichotomy. The Pharisees gave the people who did not behave. They gave the people who did not adhere to the law that they created a general classification. The Pharisees, to the, to the Pharisees, they were known as the people of the land. This is not a, a very kind way to describe people when somebody would be described as a person of the land. Pharisaic regulations say this. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, do not appoint him guardian of an orphan, do not make him the custodian of charitable funds, do not accompany him on a journey. This is how religious people treat the one lost sheep. And this is why Jesus is teaching the parable. So with this in mind, we're starting to kind of have a, 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 a renaming party of all of these parables as we go through them. So why not? Let's rename this one. Let's, let's flip the script a little. We can rename this parable because it really isn't the story about a sinner. It's a story about a Savior. So let's name this the parable of the shepherd's joy. How about that? Instead of the shepherd, or instead of the lost sheep, we are now going to refer to this as the, the parable of of the shepherd's joy. The shepherd's joy becomes um, because salvation is realized. It leads to the shepherd's joy because of the, the lost sheep. It leads to the shepherd's joy, and that really does help us focus on what this parable is truly about. The lost, this one lost sheep that is emblematic in, of everyone at some point in their life, is not expecting a savior like Jesus. If you have, can remember when you were this lost sheep, or if you're this lost sheep right now, you can think about the way that we would uh, imagine this encounter, and what we see is not what we get, or what we, what we would expect isn't what we get. The lost people that Jesus is spending time with are expecting a Messiah in the same way that the Pharisees are. They're expecting the same thing that the religious people are. 
They're expecting judgment, justice, political and military victory, complete destruction of everything that would oppose the religious system. That's who they're expecting to come to bring salvation. But what they got was a just judge, but one that offers first not what we deserve, but what we don't deserve. We know that justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. The shepherd's invitation to justice comes by way of mercy and grace. And so this Savior doesn't come as expected. He comes with mercy and grace. Because of this, when the lost realize the type of Savior that's coming, they flock to him. They flock to the demonstration of love. What they see in Jesus, the religious are blind to. Now, the occupation of shepherd was both humble and honorable. And these, it's crazy to think that what happened in the marginal hill country of Palestine at the time of Jesus actually was, uh, was really something that had started from really the beginning of, of, of creation and even extends to today. One of my memories from, from being in Iraq, there was a time where... Uh, that we were, were in Haditha at uh, a place, you know, a dam on the Euphrates River. And there was just one road that went to the west, up the west side of this reservoir. There was a, a town that was about 40 miles to the north, uh, this town of Rawa. And it was, there was only one road. And so every time we would take that road, obviously, you know, we'd find nothing in Rawa because there's only one road to watch. And so we, uh, one day, went through the desert around the, the, uh, the eastern side of this reservoir to try to come into Rawa from, from the backside. And this was a, a journey that, that took, you know, in the, it was more than 40 miles to go around that way, but it took about 12 hours to, to go around that, that reservoir. And there was a moment where we, we kind of crested a hill, went between some, some wadis, and we came up on this village, this, this movable village of Bedouins that were actively engaged in what their culture was actively engaged in for millennia, for centuries upon centuries. They just, they, they led their flocks and they lived off their flocks. How they found water in this, it just, it blows my mind. These people were, were some of the hardest people and also the most hospitable people that I've ever met. And to watch how, how uh, they were able to just, the, the land worked. They're, they're, I mean, they're weird-looking sheep, I'll tell you that. They ain't like the sheep that, that we see here. They are some weird-looking creatures. But they are um, they're healthy, and they're cared for. And they're cared for because of the shepherds. The occupation of a shepherd, this humble and honorable task, this is particularly demanding in such an arid location. Flocks of sheep and goats in the, in the time of Jesus, in, even in, in, this, in the Bedouin communities now, are, are typically communal herds. And so these, these herds belong to families and villages, and, and with a handful of guys, 
uh, they, there would be a, a team that, that would keep and protect the sheep. Now, what's interesting about this type of, of animal husbandry and what also makes the metaphor really strong in using sheep is that the shepherds lead the sheep. The shepherds don't drive the sheep. John chapter 10, we see this. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. This is why the lost are flocking to Jesus. They hear the voice of love, and they're being led by the shepherd. The idea of a shepherd is something that, that, that permeates into the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, 11 says, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lamb in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. Jeremiah 50, verse 6 says, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray and turned them loose in the mountains. They have lost their way and can't remember how to get back to the sheepfold. Clearly, a need for a shepherd. And so what we see in this metaphor, the shepherd is, is operating with immense love. The shepherd is not operating out of a place where he certainly could, out of immense authority. The shepherd is leading with love. He's not beating into submission. So the use of a shepherd and sheep would speak to a community because they would understand how this works. The shepherd was personally responsible for the sheep uh, expected even to bring the fleece or the bones of, of a sheep that had died back with them, uh, a lost sheep would lead to an exhaustive search. And because of that, this led shepherds to become excellent trackers and, and also trackers in the most inhospitable terrain. To give us an idea of, of sort of like, like the vignette of, of the life of a shepherd, we can pull this from the story of, of David and Goliath uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David persisted, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. That's pretty cool. I've done this to both lions and bears. And I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he's defied the armies of the living God. I, let, I put that in because I like that, the way that, that ends. It doesn't really talk, speak to shepherd, but maybe it does. Because that actually, this is what a shepherd is. This is what a shepherd does. A shepherd leads. A shepherd doesn't beat and drive. A shepherd protects. And when people are protected and when people are loved, they feel the invitation. But what the religious people are engaged in is not about leading and it's not about, uh, about demonstration of love or invitation. It's about beating into submission. Sir George Adam Smith, a 19th century Scottish historian and theologian, said this about the shepherd. On some high moor across which at night the hyenas howl, when you meet him, Sleepless, farsighted, weather-beaten, armed, leaning on his staff, looking out over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart, 
you understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front in his people's history. Why they gave his name to the king and made him the symbol of providence. Why Christ took him as the type of self-sacrifice. This parable, this teaching, is more about God than it is about us. The parable of the joyous shepherd rather than the parable of the lost sheep. This picture of the father that Jesus is drawing is a shepherd that thinks not of the behavior that caused the sheep to get lost, but by the love that drives him to seek out the sheep in spite of that behavior and to offer wholeness, order, salvation. This story is not about sin. This story is how God responds to sinners. Finding this lost sheep leads to joy, leads to a celebration, leads to a party. It leads to the, the same type of, of response that leads us to have Sandwich Sunday. Why do we have Sandwich Sunday? Because we want to have a party. The parable of the shepherd's joy ends with this line. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed. Now, what we keep in mind here when we say this story is not about sin, it's about God's response to sinners, we also have to say, too, that, that Jesus is not saying that people are accepted as they stand. Sinners must, re must repent. This is a truth that also comes out of this. Sinners must repent. But repentance, as Jesus teaches, not as religious people do. Repentance of sin... Being the lost sheep found is not adopting some form of purity standard. It's not an observance of, of, a, of a set of laws. True repentance, true repentance of sin is not about behavior. It's about becoming like Jesus. When we love like Jesus, when we seek the lost like Jesus, all of this, what Jesus is teaching on earth is exactly what we see the Father doing, and this is repentance. We are repenting from our sin when we love like Jesus. We are repenting from our sin when we are seeking the lost. We are repenting of our sin when we are with the notorious sinners and with the tax collectors. This does not sit well with the religious because this is a gospel of mercy as much as it is a gospel of justice. Repentance is not about behaving. Next in our study of the parables, we have the lost coin. Luke 15, starting in verse 8. Following immediately after the lost sheep, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner 
with hens. This is a God that a Pharisee would never dream of. This is a God that religious people would be offended by. This is a God that seeks not behavior, but seeks relationship. This woman lost one of ten coins. Now, this can either represent a tenth of her wealth, or, as some scholars think, that this was a coin from, from a Semedi, which is a headdress that was the mark of a married woman in, in Palestinian culture. Uh, it was really it was the equivalent of, of a wedding ring. It was a, the, this headdress that was made up of ten coins, and these ten coins would be saved from youth as, uh, as a, a young girl would be expecting to be married. Um, when she had it, this headdress was unalienably hers. You could not take this from her. This couldn't actually even be taken in order to settle a debt. So whether Jesus is referring to this uh, as a piece of wealth or he's referring it to, to a piece of a headdress, it really doesn't matter because the story is not about how the coin got lost. It's about how the woman rejoices when the coin is found. Just as a, as a shepherd rejoices, the woman is going to rejoice in the same manner. She swept the earthen floor. She scoured the floor. She, she lit lamps, hoping to see that glint of silver. And then she found it. She sees it. The coin is found, and she rejoices. These stories, these two parables, not the lost sheep and the lost coin, but the shepherd's joy and the joy of the woman. These stories are about God. They're about the love of the Father that's evidenced by the activity of the Son. What we see here is that we have a father that seeks us out. There is no depth too deep, no distance so distant. There is, no, uh, th there is nothing that this excellent tracker cannot traverse in order to find what was lost. Evidenced in these stories is the seeking love of God. The love incarnate in Jesus, our Savior, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. So the parable teaches us about God, and it also calls us to true repentance. For the once lost, but now found, for all of those that that would describe, once lost, but now found, it means to repent is to be aware of the love that sought us and extend that love to those that are around us. That's repentance. Show me a repentant sinner, and I will show you someone engaged in the missional seeking of the lost. Show me a repentant sinner. I will show you spending time with people of the land. Show me a repentant sinner, and I can show you someone 
that is spending time with tax, tax collectors and notorious sinners. Show me a repentant sinner and I can show you somebody getting dirty with the dirty. Loving the people that threaten us. Loving the people that make us uncomfortable. Loving the people that respond to their pain by bringing violence against us. Show me a repentant sinner, I will show you someone that is with those. As we turn back to worship this morning, I leave you with this from N.T. Wright in his commentary on these two parables. He says this, What would we have to do in the visible public world if we were to make people ask the questions to which stories like these are the answer? What might today's Christians do that would make people ask, why are you doing something like that? And give us the chance to tell stories about finding something that has been lost. Would you pray with me? Father, we celebrate the shepherd that came for us. We thank you. Father, I pray that you'd connect us to your love now. I pray that, that you'd connect us to that seeking love that demonstrates your activity on earth. I pray, Father, that you would come. Make your presence known. And Father, as we feel that love, I pray that you would call us to true repentance. So Father, for all of the places where, where behavior would be expected, I pray that you'd come against that in the name of Jesus. And I pray that you would bring the invitation to belong. And Father, after the invitation to belong, I pray that, that you would demonstrate yourself in such a way that it would bring belief. And Father, through that belief, would we see change. So Father, would you come, teach us how to love, teach us to repent, teach us to abide in you. In Jesus' name.